to Destination Change, a podcast where we talk recovery, treatment, and more. I'm your host, Angie Fiedler-Sutton, with the National Behavioral Health Association of Providers. Our guest today is Harry Nelson. Harry is the founder and managing partner of Nelson Hardeman LLP, as well as the founder of the National Behavioral Health Association of Providers. Beyond his legal expertise, Harry is known nationally as a consummate leader in the intersection of healthcare, law, and business, as evidenced by his role in co-founding five healthcare-related startups in the last decade. Deeply immersed in healthcare transformation and innovation, he frequently speaks on cutting-edge issues and the future of the industry itself. Harry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. Glad to be here. First question, I guess, is uh, why healthcare law as opposed to all the other different types of law that there is available for you to go into? You know, I um, I grew up in the Midwest, in Michigan, and I spent a summer of college working as an intern on Capitol Hill for a congressman and mostly answering constituent mail. And I got to be honest, I had not really thought much about our healthcare system until that summer. It was summer of 1988. First, George Bush was running for president against uh, uh, Governor Dukakis, and the uh, it, I, I spent my whole summer writing letters about Medicare and discovering this massive, this fascinating government agency and, and a whole broad array of government programs. And I came back from that summer to my junior year of college really animated and fascinated by regulatory work in general as this intersection of government meets the economy and like the way that this whole part of our society works without direct visibility to most people and particularly fascinated by the way that healthcare was dominated by that by that from that point forward in college i knew i was going to go to law school from that summer i knew i wanted to get involved in regulatory work and i was thinking about healthcare i didn't lock in on healthcare until years later i went to law school i knew i wanted to do regulatory work just from that time in dc Sort of like I, I, when I moved out to California years later, I, I discovered there were all these jobs in entertainment, and uh, it was like a, a wake up call growing up in uh, in suburban Detroit where where you didn't have that's not something people did, and so I knew I wanted to do regulatory work, and and but the longer I kept going doing some university regulatory work, financial regulatory work, I got a chance in the university context to do academic medical center, teaching hospital, uh, medical school faculty, dental school work, and I got fascinated with all the interplay, just how complex it was, and decided that that was where I wanted to spend my time. So yeah, it's been a good decision. It's 30 years later. I uh, I really grateful that I, whether I stumbled into it, whether it was by design, uh, somebody else's design, I, I don't know, but that's how I got here. Okay. Now, addiction treatment is kind of just a subset of healthcare law, but you helped found National Behavioral Health Association providers back when it was still called American Addiction Treatment Association. Why addiction treatment? Tell me your kind of your entry into the recovery space. Sure. So when I started practicing healthcare law, which was really 94, uh, 1994 in Chicago, my first law firm, it was for big university medical centers, just for Loyola University Medical Center, Northwestern University Medical Center. And it was mostly academic, clinical research, Medicare, all, all of these, uh, these kind of in, what we call institutional healthcare issues. And what happened was my law firm splintered. And it was coincided with the birth of my oldest son, who's now 22. 
and I decided to move to California. And I started working while I was think, thinking I would go, I'd find a similar position doing similar work in Los Angeles. I started working with a lawyer who represented doctors and health professionals in trouble. And it was like going to the complete opposite end of the spectrum from representing gigantic healthcare providers. And so I represented a lot of different kinds of doctors and health professionals in trouble. But the people who I, what I realized I felt a very different relationship to the doctors and mental health professionals who were dealing with addiction issues and particularly those in recovery. And I appreciate the opportunity to serve, but I started feeling I could see myself in many ways in the people I was working with, even if I didn't hadn't had an experience of, for me, it wasn't alcohol or drugs. It was probably, if anything, you know, disordered eating among other things. But I came to see and understand my own brokenness and sort of why that was a source of strength to just sort of be able to talk about it through really developing not only working relationships, but close friendships with mental health professionals and doctors who had done the same thing around addiction. And so what happened was a lot of these people, be, you know, started referring me in and asking me after I helped deal with whatever they were dealing with. Sometimes it was medical board. Sometimes it was uh, reimbursement problems with Medicare or issues with the DEA, whatever it was, they started asking me, hey, can you help us with this addiction treatment program we're working with or we're trying to start, this outpatient program, this residential program. And at first, I I didn't know anything about that world. I was really a hospital and doctor lawyer. And what I found was they said, there's nobody, we don't really have anybody to do this. Like, we think you you can figure this stuff out. And I did a couple of times. And all of a sudden I found, you know, the, the secret of the world I occupy is you do something a few times in regulatory work and you, you very quickly know more about it than almost every other lawyer out there because so few people were doing it. So what happened was I got to be a lawyer for many addiction doctor, addiction medicine doctors and psychologists, other mental health professionals for addiction treatment programs. And that was kind of in the middle 2000s. And then the Affordable Care Act happened. And all of a sudden, there was this whole new wave of insurance reimbursement being mandated by the federal government. And the industry was growing by leaps and bounds. And I turned out to be one of the few people who actually knew quite a bit about it before then, at least as it related to some of the the licensing work, particularly in California and some of the Western states. And so my phone started ringing off the hook on one addiction treatment and mental health program after another. And I very quickly realized that besides just being a source of work, there was a lot of work to be done to establish standards and really to help educate the, the leadership, the management and the staff, the operational you know, staff of these programs because people weren't familiar with very traditional healthcare concepts. So I started speaking and writing about all kinds of issues, things on relating to patient safety, things like how to deal with issues where the licensing schemes that the state created didn't match up exactly with what the insurance companies were demanding, how to deal with not getting paid by insurance companies, how to deal with clinical safety issues, risks of of overdose and, and other kind of patient harm. I was just in the right place at the right time. And I really did feel a sense of mission that I ha- could take a lot of the experience of coming out of the more traditional, you know, well-established parts of healthcare that we hadn't had to fight so hard to get recognized as healthcare. And I was able to direct that and leverage that for the addiction treatment community and the broader behavioral health community. And I really felt like I had something I could do in the world that would help people. And it was kind of an exciting, to be honest with you, it was, it was exhilarating for me to be able to get up in front of a group of people and talk from experience about issues that a lot of people were seeing for the first time and thinking about for the first time. And yeah, I was really grateful for 
that opportunity. And it's, uh, you know, it's basically, I don't know, 12 years later since the Affordable Care Act stuff started, but it, it, it really, that was the thing that propelled me into uh, the role I've been able to play in the behavioral health community. Well, let's talk a little bit about the founding of Nelson Hardeman and also the founding of National Behavioral Health Association Providers, which was originally American Addiction Treatment Association. What kind of caused that to happen? So, okay, so the first step, let's just talk about Nelson Hardeman. In the old days, it was called Fenton Nelson, my, my, my first partner. So uh, basically, I made this move. I was doing institutional health care in Chicago. I come to California, and I'm working with all the – and I thought I was going to just do, spend a few months working with – a lawyer who did all these doctors and mental health professionals in trouble. And it turned out that once I started getting into that work, I found that I, the work of working with like small providers was like much more intimate and it, it just was emotionally much more satisfying for me than working for large, you know, nonprofit, huge university and, and, and other big institutions. And so I started, I, I was like, so while I thought I would only spend maybe a couple months or a year doing that work, I realized when I started doing it that there was work that really mattered to me in terms of helping these people that wasn't being done by anybody else. And what I discovered was there was a whole group of lawyers who were really good, really expert at helping people get out of trouble. But like once you dealt with that problem, whether it was a licensing board or a hospital staff privileges issue or a, a fight with a re over reimbursement or with a different government agency, there was there was nobody there who was saying, OK, here's what you should do next you know, as you build your next, you rebuild your business or build your new business, here's what you should do on compliance, here's what you should do on business strategy. And I realized there was this gaping hole. And that's really what led me to start my own law firm in the first place. And and I, I what I found was, and you only see this in the rearview mirror, it's not like I, this was by design, but in retrospect, all the work that came to me was the work that wasn't being done by other healthcare lawyers. And it was in all these areas that were just unloved or newly developing, emerging, innovative, you know, it was all of the above. And I just loved that stuff. It was really like a treat for me as a lawyer to think through these issues and figure them out. And so I started building expertise and things that back in 2005 and, you know, nobody was doing addiction treat among healthcare lawyers, addiction, behavioral health, telehealth, all these things that like now today are huge. They were nothing back then in healthcare law. And so anyway, so that was the beginning of the law firm. What happened was I very quickly, the deeper I got into behavioral health, and this is really more like fast forwarding about, you know, seven, eight years to like 2012, 13, uh, 14, was behavioral health was exploding. I was speaking, but I really wanted to figure out how I could put more resources in front of more people. And I realized like working as a lawyer, there's a very limited number of people I can reach. We end up getting expensive, unfortunately, the economics of law practice, hourly rates make us kind of prohibitive for a lot of people. And it also means that most of the time people, if they want to work with you, they'll, a lot of people will work with you when they have a big problem. But as soon as they get cut past the kind of over the hump, you know, it's like, thanks, we'll uh, take it from here on our own. And I was trying to figure out a way to really put more resources for behavioral health compliance and regulatory knowledge out there for a lot more people for the whole industry, for, for, for other lawyers, and also to start developing standards and certifications to address problems that were coming up uh, with insurance companies, with government agencies. And so I, th that all came into being in what is now today, um, you know, the National Behavioral Health Association of Providers. It had a different name when we first started, AATA, and then BHAP. And it was all really an effort on my part to take the expertise that we had built and figure out a platform that would, whether it was e-learning certification, that would really disseminate knowledge 
because I, I thought there was a huge gap out there um, on getting really reliable, you know, knowledge, re- reliable information on complex regulatory issues. And uh, so that was the, the sort of impetus to start and, and what drove me to, to do it. So you are a regular speaker at conferences, especially in the healthcare and behavioral health industry. Do you have a favorite topic that you like to talk to or is that like choosing your favorite child? I'm definitely ADHD. I I get distracted easily. So I find that I get very passionate about particular topics and I start speaking about them. But generally by the third time I've talked about a topic, I'm a little bit bored with it. I do appreciate, look, the thing that drives me to do this work is my own. I have a, you know, there's some insecurity in me that makes me really want to help other people in part to help other people but in part if i'm being honest just to you know be valued and appreciated right and so 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 there's this aspect where there's always a new issue a bright shiny object that's kind of calling to me and i feel like i should speak to that and i want to address it um and i get i'm interested in kind of trying to unpack what's happening and translate that to people at the same time, the response from of what people want and need is constantly evolving. So I feel like the issues have shifted over time. I mean, there's some things that have run through and that are, you know, like marketing. If I don't give another talk on ECRA and marketing and challenges with marketers, like I, I that topic is not necessarily one that still is so interesting to me. I feel like we've I've you know lived and breathed every nook and cranny of it. On the other hand, it's of continuing burning interest uh, because the government is pressing hard on that, right? So there's a lot of topics. Today, the topics that I'm most personally interested in are privacy and the way that privacy has been completely upended and what health privacy means and what providers need to be doing to really be ahead of the curve on health privacy. And the other issue that's really, uh, that I'm really uh, trying to figure out how to communicate is is a, a topic that a lot of people scratch their heads on or don't even know what I'm talking about, which is corporate practice of medicine and the way that the industry has been transformed. And some people, including me, say for the good uh, through the investment coming from private equity and from venture capital and other sources and moving, creating opportunities to scale companies. And we also have an attack going on, a critique going on of people who think that private equity has spoiled healthcare and is killing behavioral health. So I'm very, that's a topic that is really interesting to me and one that I'm trying to figure out how to explore. But I feel like uh, I sort of let the universe decide what is going to be interesting to people. And, you know, and I'm just constantly trying to think, get, put my own thoughts out there and sort of hopefully give people some clarity in the process. Now, you've written a couple of books. Let me get the titles right. Uh, From Obamacare to Trump Care, Why You Should Care. And then The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. Let's talk a little bit about those. Kind of give me your elevator pitch for both books. Sure. So From Obamacare to Trump Care was the first time I thought about writing a book. The context was I was traveling. I was actually in Israel. And a friend who um, works in digital health said to me, you know, if you have time, I'd love for you to, a lot of people are, are in, you know, here, like medical device manufacturers are worried about what's going to happen to, you know, the Affordable Care Act. This was right after President Trump was first elected. Is it all going to be uh, kicked aside now? Or do we have to remake our strategies? Because we've been building based on everything we've been seeing happen in U.S. healthcare for the last you know, five, six years. And so I said, sure, I'm happy to talk about it. And I showed up, I thought I was going to speak to a group of, you know, four or five people. And I found myself in a room of like 50, 60 people crammed in to hear what I had to say. And I had put together some slides, 
and a sort of where of where U.S. healthcare was going. And what I really wanted to say to people is, don't panic. You know, the Affordable Care Act did do some significant things. Some of the things that it did are not going to be reversible. It also failed in some key ways, and it, or it hasn't succeeded yet in some key ways. And the Republican vision of healthcare, which was then more Paul Ryan than Donald Trump, was not a. It wasn't terrifying. It was just there are things that it really did address that that were interesting and then and and promising and things that were just left out and missing. And and I tried to say, you know, focus more on systemically what's broken and what needs to be fixed. That's where you should be if you're in healthcare is like, how do you fix, how do you address the brokenness and don't pay so much attention to which party is in control and whether they're going to favor this program or that program. That's a losing strategy, in my opinion. So anyway, I, I was leaving I, on the I had a long plane ride home, 15 hours. And I thought to myself, this is a moment where a lot of people are asking the same question I was being asked in that room. And there's really an opportunity to communicate something different and to say something that people need to hear. And so I put that book out there. It was We did it quickly. It's funny. I, I, I thought when I, I was thinking, oh, a lot of people are going to be thinking about this topic and wanting to say something about it. I should really get something out early in the Trump administration and not try to be political. I, I'm always trying to get people to avoid being ideological and political and just try to figure out a practical you know, approach where you call balls and strikes on both sides. And so the book was, it, it was a huge, it was a good success. It wasn't like, uh, whatever, it didn't hit the New York Times bestseller, but it, it got a lot of attention. And it was a lesson for me because as worried as I was that a lot of people were going to have you know, things to say, and I should hurry. Nobody else ever published a book on this topic. So it still stands up. I, I actually teach a couple of college courses and I mean, uh, graduate medical education courses. And I still, I use some chapters in that book. I, I've, I've been asked to have them republished. So that book still continues to be, it has a lot of value in some of the discussion of what's broken and what needs fixing in US healthcare. The second book was much more, the United States of Opioids was a passion project in a different way. I was, I described, I was doing all this work with addiction treatment programs and mental health programs. And normally, you know, the early work was licensing, contracting, reimbursement, fairly dry topics, marketing. Uh, but all of a sudden around 2000 and I don't know, 16, 15, 16, I started getting more and more phone calls about patient overdoses. And I started, and, and it was, it literally became like a drumbeat of facilities residential treatment programs calling me patient had died a patient had committed suicide patient a lot of overdose deaths and it was really a different kind of work and there was a bizarre feeling because on the one hand I was sort of again honored to be the one that was getting these calls and helping work this through and and several times programs that had multiple it had happened multiple times in the same programs and they were worried about where they're going to be able to survive how did they communicate to the licensing agencies. The, the, and I, I was there as the healthcare lawyer, but it really felt like, it, on the one hand, I felt like, wow, this is such an opportunity to, again, to, to not only do this work, but to communicate and hopefully save lives and prevent this from happening. But I realized like there was also something that was problematic for me about just making money on the way that this, that behavioral health was dealing with this, this wave of tragedies. And it was just, it didn't feel right for me to stand on the sideline, I thought I needed to do something to put together a new perspective. And my thinking was that not many people, certainly not many non-lawyers, and also very few lawyers were seeing this industry from all the sides that I was seeing it, dealing with the doctors and issues around prescribing and pain, 
dealing with these overdose deaths, dealing with pharmacies and the way that they were reacting to this. And I wanted to say something different. And I also wanted to say not to say not not just how do you deal with these immediate problems? How do you prescribe for someone? How do you avoid an overdose death? But how do we solve this problem? Because I think when you if you take a hard look at the opioid crisis, you see this like merger of all of the, I mean, it's a, a syndemic is, uh, you know, the, the term that, um, that I, I think we have to use for it, which is overlapping parallel epidemics, right? An epidemic of pain, an epidemic of, and, and of despair and, and, and an epidemic, a mental health epidemic and an addiction, you know, this, this, uh, this terrible specific um, addictiveness of opioids. And we also see a really broken, it shows you the most broken part of our government, where, in my opinion, the federal government, you know, was so worried about getting patients, doctors to prescribe fewer prescription opioid medications that they successfully, you know, cracked down on the doctors and drove the market for this onto the street into a toxic drug supply, killing more people, harming more people. And I felt like I needed to say something about it. So, um, so that book was really like, I just felt like I couldn't, I couldn't work on anything else until I got that off my chest and tried to put something out there. I feel good about it. I feel like it's still the most harrowing problem that we're dealing with and one that's really hard for people to to even wrap their heads around. But I do feel like the conversation is moving in in the right ways. I feel like I hope I played some small part in driving that. I, I think we're just like at the very beginning of the beginning. Of, of trying to really get an understanding of what's going on so that we can address it. That was my um, reason I did it. That is great. In the recovery industry, one of the things we've talked about in prior podcasts is, is just kind of some of the resources that people in the industry use on a regular basis. While you're more healthcare generally and focused on behavioral health, if someone was interested in kind of keeping updated with the latest outside of in BHAP, what would you recommend in terms of resources to to keep ahead and keep abreast of things? Beyond behavioral health, there's a lot of places to look. I tend to keep, I, first of all, I thank God for the search engines and the ability to just put particular topics in and find out what's happening because there's so much changing on so many fronts. I personally have like uh, prompts set to get news on probably about 40 healthcare topics because I, uh, even though behavioral health is one of my deep passions, there's a lot of areas that I'm very interested in, telemedicine, telehealth broadly, genomics, and kind of what's happening, what's the the, the future of medicine, um, and how we're dealing with um, problems like um, the upcoming, the doctor and general health professional shortage you know, with the aging of America. Anyway, so I, where do I look? I, I read a lot. I know these are some polarizing choices, but I happen to like STAT, which is a more kind of digital health, life science focused publication, but that's one that I read a lot. Um, I read Modern Healthcare pretty regularly. And there's a few other, some of the Becker's, Becker's Hospital Review. And to be honest with you, there's a lot as a lawyer, I, I, there's other law firms are constantly publishing um, Lexology, is a uh, is a great resource that um, I encourage people to uh, to check out if you're interested in the kind of regulatory dimensions and legally what's happening. But it's it's hard to keep track of everything. Things are moving on so many issues so quickly. Uh, but those are the main places that I go. Great. Now, one of the things we also have talked about in prior podcasts that uh, you may or may not have some input in is the concept of recovery capital. Basically, the idea of things that help people go through recovery. Is that something that you have some knowledge about? For me, this work of this this last 20 years or so has been a massive education and transformative in my own life. 
And recovery capital is, yeah, is a huge topic. I would not claim to be an expert on recovery capital in the same way I would on healthcare regulatory issues. The person who I most moved by on this topic is um, David Best. And yeah, I think to me, recovery capital fits in a broader topic of kind of social determinants of healthcare, which is to say that like you can only really address healthcare needs, and that applies to dealing with behavioral health issues and, and addiction and sustaining recovery to a very limited extent. Maybe 20% of the work is actually in the healthcare system and through direct healthcare interventions. And most of the work is really around the social determinants. Like, are you connected to a community? Do you really feel like a, you have a sense of purpose? Do you feel like there's things for you to do in the world where you can be of service to others? Are you needed, right? Like, so to me, like that stuff is the stuff that keeps me alive and and healthy in my own life. And I really think that it's a place where we need to be focused. So I, I do believe that, you know, when you talk about recovery capital, that that's where my head goes is to all of these things that, you know, I look, I think we, we're living in an age of profound pain and despair and dislocation and trauma. Um, but the problem is that if you get stuck in your pain and in your dislocation and in your trauma, not only are you stuck, but you're also alone and isolated in it. And it's not a place where it's it's easy to tap into the energy to move forward. And so I just think that in our own lives, really stay deeply connected and contributing and being and really being of service in and we're building up capital, right? That's what the thing that I think getting out of the place of fear to talk about what's going on with you, getting out of the place of reluctance to ask other people how they're doing, being in a place of empathy and not of judgment so that people you can actually have communicate with people and support each other and uh, and get the support you need. But to me, that's really the essential stuff, right? Like I when I look at the crisis of despair, and I don't mean to like, I think there's this stuff is this stuff is complicated, right? It's there's so many pieces of the puzzle. And people are dealing with different trauma issues. There's massive socioeconomic pieces that we that, and, and it's not to take anything away from that. But I do think if we can get to a place where people feel genuinely connected to a community that needs them and that they need and get to a place of really feeling like they, they have a, a sense of purpose and that they can really contribute something, those things draw, lead you to a sense of autonomy and ability. And those are the things that sustain us, right? Like to me, that's how I think about it. I'm always reluctant. I'm being around incredible mental health professionals and doctors and recovery and the, and recovery, you know, counselors, everybody, people who dedicate their lives on these issues. I feel I'm sometimes a little embarrassed to like get out there and speak on those topics, but I will say those are animating forces in my own life. And I think that we have to figure out how to get those messages across. I, I sometimes retreat to the space I feel safer in talking about, which is like, you know, the, the technical regulatory stuff, but that's the stuff that matters most. Well, let's then pivot a little bit. Um, just when I introduced you, I mentioned that you had co-founded five healthcare-related startups in the last decade. Talk a little bit about the, you know, process of creating, uh, founding a startup and, you know, what are some of the things that you found were the most difficult and as well as the easiest parts of doing that? Yeah, I've had some successes and some, you know, some learning experiences. I definitely think, even though I'm in some ways being a lawyer is kind of a conservative choice, I, I have an entrepreneur's heart. And so every time I walk around and see a problem or an unmet need, I'm, I'm always thinking to myself, like, could I solve that? Is that something I could be part of solving? 
So the first time that I did it was around healthcare compliance. I was talking earlier about the issue of, you know, one of the challenges of as a lawyer is like, I don't even want to tell you what my hourly rate is because it's so it's so absurd and it discourages people from really like using lawyers on a long-term systemic basis. And so I was thinking to myself, and then I, I was like, well, you need to find a long, different cost model to do things that, that are needed systemically. And by that, I mean things like really assessing risk, you know, putting in place policy and procedures, training, auditing, and sort of figuring out how you're doing. We have such a complex system. So I came up with, I had this idea uh, and by the way, it started also with the Affordable Care Act. The Affor- uh, it's funny. This is like uh, just an aside. I had an idea. The Affordable Care Act said that every provider in the country was going to need compliance programs. And I thought to myself, I can't do this through the law firm. It's going to be too expensive and too clunky. Let me create an organization that's going to create compliance programs. And we created, a, I actually tried to create a software company uh, in the process. And uh, the software company taught me mainly that I should not be in the business of starting software companies. So what I'll say, I guess, let me, so to to answer your question, what I learned is it's, I think it's a good thing to walk around and, and sort of ask the question, like, is there an unmet need here? Is there something that's not being done or isn't being done that could be done much differently or better? And then the next question is, can I do this? And I think the question that I've learned that I didn't sort of appreciate fully on day one is what's the team of people that builds this need to, what does it that need to look like, right? Like there's, I, I tried to build a software company without having a coder or programmer in-house lesson, uh, not, you know, that's a, just a fundamental mistake to try to put, to put to move forward on a venture without the right team. So you have to ask, do I have the right team? And then, and I think you really need to push, do I really have the right idea, right? I think there's, there's a missing piece here. There's an unmet need, but is it really that way? And you have to really dig, right? Sometimes I've made the mistake of investing in companies because the person who, the founder persuaded me that there was nothing, there was, it was like a, a gaping hole. And had I looked a little harder and really put, kicked the tires on that, I would have discovered that, no, in fact, there were other people really doing that. It was just wasn't, it might not have been obvious, but there, that was actually a need that was being addressed. So I think, the, I, I think it's really important to be constantly, I think there are massive opportunities out there to build businesses, um, but you have to start off, do I have the right team? Is it really, is this opportunity real? And I think you have to be just constantly, the lesson for me is you have to constantly be paying attention to the feedback and being prepared to pivot. Uh, the successful businesses that I've started, you know, I mentioned that that one, we, we th- I thought the Affordable Care Act was going to prompt this wave of a need for compliance programs. It turns out that that was a part of the Affordable Care Act. It's still there, but it's never been enforced. It doesn't really mean anything. No, whatever. It didn't push people to launch compliance programs the way that I assumed it would. And that wasn't the need that was met. But, we, but you know, just by pivoting, we stumbled onto a much a different need, right? This need for a lower cost model of compliance, of fractional compliance officers. And that's been my most successful personal spinoff. I've been involved in a lot of other people's businesses, you know, ventures trying to just add strategic support. But I think, I think it's difficult, right? The hardest part, when I look at a venture, I obviously want to ask, is this, is this really a good idea that's meeting an unmet need? But then the questions are, is this the right person to lead it? Do they have the ability to build and get the alignment of the right team around them. And then, and then the, the hardest question is, can they raise the capital? You know, can they raise the money that, that, that this is going to need? Because ultimately money is oxygen, you know, and if you, if you have been involved in amazing startups with amazing teams, but they just like had to stop and start because they ran out of money and they needed to wait. And you, you don't ever build a business in a stop, start mode. So that's the hardest question. 
But if you have people who, where you can answer all four of those questions, you know, and, and, and get comfortable that you have, there's the right idea, the right team, uh, um, and they can ex- they actually can execute and they can raise the money they need to make it happen. You know, it's magic, right? It's you see companies out of out of nothing. I, I've had the privilege as a lawyer to watch people build in the space of two to three years, build literally billion dollar companies where there was nothing. And it's not easy to me when you see that happen. It's really it's amazing, right? It's it's only one of many things. Maybe we celebrate it too much the sort of heroic, uh, whatever venture, but I personally find it really exhilarating to be around people who are trying to transform things in general. And, and that's certainly one space that I am always drawn to. And it's a little bit of a roller coaster. I I'm involved now in a genomics venture and this might be, um, you know, truly transformative or it's got a net, a, de- a difficult course. Who knows? It, it could finally come up against uh, whatever, you know, get into a problem. I mean, there's no, you can be early sometimes being early is the same in, in building a company as being wrong. <laughs> it's like for every, whatever, pick your, pick whatever massive brand you want to pick. There were dozens of companies pr- trying to do the same thing that didn't quite get there. I love the venture space. I think it's, it kind of really tests everybody involved in it, but it's uh, it's definitely a, an area that I keep coming back to and, and get exhilarated working in. Great. Now we're running close to the end of time. Um, was there something that you wanted to talk about that we haven't or something that you uh, thought I was going to ask that I didn't? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I, there's, I feel like things, behavioral health is constantly changing. I'm trying to think if there's anything, you know, I, I think I, I would just say, I thought you might ask about the current moment in yeah. where we are. Um, I think I think it's a really interesting time. I think a lot of people, you know, lose sight of the like cycle. To me, I think it's it's very important to kind of pay attention to the the where we are in the regulatory cycle and development, and to be paying attention to the kind of what we can learn from you know the behavior of, of payers and, and and government regulatory agencies. And uh, it's tricky, re- really, to figure out like what's going to happen next. I, I think we're living in a kind of scary moment for a lot of providers in the sense that the payers are getting more and more adapted to cutting back on payment and figuring out how to reduce payment and just making it tougher. On the other hand, I think I'm personally extremely excited about the therapeutic advances that we're seeing. And I think we are living through a time when, you know, for me, in many ways, like addiction treatment, behavioral health was kind of a neglected space because the reality in American healthcare is that if there isn't money in it, if there isn't insurance reimbursement, if it's not covered, it, people aren't going to, not only are they, it's not going to be delivered, it's, they're not going to study it. And we're getting, we're in a period of real catch up. Uh, and, and I think that, I think it's going to continue to be challenging, but, but, but a space with massive opportunities for people who can, who can na- navigate current challenges. And so um, I'm still bullish on the future of it, but I do think you got to be paying close attention to to sort of where our system is moving directionally. And yeah, I'm happy to get into more specific issues, but that's kind of at a high level how I think about it. Okay. How can people get a hold of you and learn more about you and or Nelson Hardiman? The best place way to reach me is through Nelson Hardiman. My email is hnelson at Nelson Hardiman. You can find us uh, online and my information is out there if you... Uh, Look around. I'm not. I don't think I'm that hard to find. But email email is a great way to communicate with me and with our law firm. And yeah, I'm I'm always interested. An issue that I can help people with directly, or whether it's just pointing people in the right direction. Always interested in finding and sort of hearing what's going on 
and and thinking about challenges that that our people are facing, you know, in behavioral health. Love to hear from people, and uh, really grateful for the opportunity to contribute to trying to improve our behavioral health system. Great. Well. You've been listening to Destination Change. Our guest today was Harry Nelson. Thank you again for being here. Our theme song was Kita by Sun Nation and used via a Creative Commons license by the Free Music Archive. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts so we can get more listeners. In the meantime, you can always see more about the podcast, including show notes and where else to listen to, on our website, www.nbhap.org. If you have questions for the podcast, please email us at info at nbhap.org. Thanks for listening.